This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 168th episode, we discuss the 1963 comedic caper, The Pink Panther, for its 60th anniversary later this year. Written and directed by Blake Edwards, co-written by Maurice Richland, score by Henry Mancini, starring David Niven as... Sir Charles Lytton, Peter Sellers as Inspector Jacques Clouseau, Robert Wagner as George Lytton, Capucine as Simone Clouseau, Claudia Cardinale as Princess Dalla, Colin Gordon as Tucker, Brenda DeBanzi as Angela Dunning, and Gail Garnett was the voice of Princess Dalla, however she was uncredited. Recognition for this movie, The Pink Panther was released in Italy on December 18th, 1963, with an American release on March 18th, 1964. It was met with mostly positive reviews, particularly of Peter Sellers' role as the iconic Inspector Clouseau. The Pink Panther would gross nearly $10.9 million at the box office in 1964, making it the 10th biggest movie of that year, ahead of Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, and behind the movie sequel, A Shot in the Dark, that was released in June 1964. The soundtrack album for the film, featuring Henry Mancini's score, was released in 1964 and reached number 8 on the Billboard magazine's pop album chart. It was nominated for Grammy and Academy Awards, and was later inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and selected by the American Film Institute as number 20, in its list of 100 years of film scores. The Pink Panther currently holds an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 55 score on Metacritic, and a 3.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, we'll start where we do every week. What is your relationship to this movie? I remember as a kid it being on network TV like a Saturday night movie and my dad falling off the couch laughing. He had seen this about years before. I don't know. I, it, it was released before I was born in Italy and af, right after I was born in the United States. So he's the one who tuned me into it, and I started watching it. And then I saw the sequel shot in the dark with him as well. So you were born after December 18th, 1963, and we've just gotten your birthday wrong for years? I thought it was released in October. But anyway, this movie is basically as old as you are. Yes. Leading indicator that he's going to be turning 60 this year later on. Yeah. So I only remember watching this film once before, and I remembered liking this film, and then you had the box DVD set of all the other ones. And so I watched A Shot in the Dark, and it basically said to me... I can't stand Peter Sellers. I don't think this is funny. And I don't understand why people love this. At least in the first one, it's more of a ensemble cast. And there's a lot more elements than just the very ridiculous slapstick that Sellers tries to put in this. 
but I much prefer his turn in Dr. Strangelove to this because this isn't funny as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Okay. Physical humor just will never do it for me. Yes, but it's not just physical humor. At least the third and fourth sequels were more lines and such. The fifth one, by then, Peter Sellers was having so many heart problems. He was having a hard time remembering his lines, so they just did a lot more physical humor. Okay. Well, I have only watched the first two, and that was more than enough as far as I was concerned. Okay. So what is this movie about? It's a heist film that was turned on its ear. It was supposed to originally be a heist film uh, emphasizing David Niven, and Peter Sellers ended up being put in it to replace Peter Ustinoff, and it changed from being a more serious film to a comic farce. Yeah, you could definitely tell the tonal shift in this, and obviously the difference between the two actors, I would indicate, is uh, night and day as far as dramatic acting. But, I don't know, I mean, I, I can't find any deeper underlying meaning to this movie. I mean, it's it's pretty well on the surface. It's a slapstick comedy in the end. Yes, about a less than clever jewel thief and the bumbling detective on his trail. Because I, I, I could see at one point where this movie was crafted as being sophisticated in like the champagne scene or a couple of other points in the movie. But ultimately, I, I just don't think that the inclusion of Sellers and his bumbling, stumbling nature Uh, makes this very suave. It's not supposed to be. Okay. Not at this point. Just a second. Do you find the the Three Stooges funny? Uh, I don't know. Okay, well, see, I mean, yes, this is slapstick, and it's a lot of, of physical humor, and if you don't find it funny, that's fine, but a lot of people do. And It's funnier the first time you see it or when you haven't seen it in a while because you don't remember everything. But is it laugh out loud funny? Mm, Probably not at this point. But anyway, I I give it better props than you do. Well, we've talked before how, and I think a lot of this is borrowed in, in some capacity. Yes, The Stooges is a example to draw upon as far as the physical comedy of that is pretty much all of their humor was physical comedy however i do think there's an element of it also from like the marx brothers that this is probably drawing a little bit more from it as far as i'm concerned i just think it's doing a lesser job i still think actually and i was surprised because i would have assumed they were much more physical humor that it would have dated or aged more and i actually enjoyed several of the Marx Brother movies that I've seen that it actually holds up comparative to this. This seems like kind of lowest common denominator laughs as far as I'm concerned. Well, but the Marx Brothers had a lot more intellectual stuff. They had a little quips and wordplay and double entente. So it was a little more sophisticated. This is more in the line of Oliver 
uh, Hardy and Laurel, Stan Laurel than, than the Marx Brothers. I don't know. Do you still think that this would be widely seen as funny in a modern sense? I mean, we've talked ad nauseum about how comedy dates itself pretty easily. I think because it's physical as opposed to intellectual or wordplay, I think it would still hold up. I don't. I think people would enjoy it. I don't think it's going to hold up completely because, like you said, there you're not alone in, uh, as far as people who do not like physical humor, slapstick. Um, I think there's a, probably a lesser group of people that appreciate slapstick than than don't, or that, that don't appreciate it more than they do, I guess. Well, do you want to dig more into the background of the movie? Sure. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? The Pink Panther is a delightful comedy caper directed by Blake Edwards, which weaves together a tale of stolen diamonds, mistaken identities, and the comically inept Inspector Jacques Clouseau, played brilliantly by Peter Sellers. When the legendary Pink Panther diamond goes missing, Clouseau is assigned to the high-profile case. Armed with an abundance of confidence, but lacking in competence, Clouseau sets out to apprehend the cunning thief responsible for the audacious heist. However, his unconventional methods and comedic missteps only serve to create chaos and confusion. As Clouseau stumbles his way through the investigation, a tangled web of relationships emerge. The glamorous Princess Dalla, Claudia Cardinelli, the seductive Simone, Cupacina, and the dashing Sir Charles Linton, David Niven, all become entangled in Clouseau's pursuit of the Pink Panther. With each twist and turn, the lines between friend and foe become blurred, and laughter ensues. Thank you. Did you know? An animated Pink Panther was created for the opening credits because writer and director Blake Edwards felt that the credits would benefit from some kind of cartoon character. David H. DePotty and Frizz Freelang decided to personify the film's eponymous jewel, and the Pink Panther character was chosen by Edwards from over a hundred alternative Panther sketches. The Pink Panther introduced in the opening credits became a popular film and television character in his own right, beginning with the cartoon short, The Pink Fink, the following year. Did you know? Somewhat overweight for much of his life up to this point, and possessing a hang-dog face, Peter Sellers was obsessed with becoming a handsome leading man. Although he easily outperformed Robert Wagner in this picture, he envied the American actor's good looks. To get himself in better shape, he subjected himself to a grueling weight loss regimen that included the excessive use of diet pills, possibly a contributing factor to the heart attack he suffered before the film's release. Some biographers also claim he had his teeth straightened and capped. Did you know? With just two weeks to go before the shooting begun, the producers decided that Ava Gardner's erratic lifestyle could affect filming and decided not to offer her the part of Madame Clouseau. Capucine was hired in a hurry, but Peter Ustinov's wife, he originally had the part of Clouseau, felt this would affect the caliber of the film production and told him to withdraw. From this chaos, Peter Sellers became an international superstar. And with that, 
We'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, for its 10th anniversary, we are discussing the Wall Street thrill ride, The Wolf of Wall Street from 2013. Directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Terrence Winter, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie, and Matthew McConaughey. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance is up. Dad, I have a feeling I know where you're headed. Yes, Peter Sellers. It's I, To me, it's no question. He stole the movie. David Niven, even at one point in time, there was a award show or something. that It was the Academy Awards. He was a yeah. presenter, and he had them change the music. Yes, because he was like, the Pink Panther was not my film. And as a result... I would say, and this will be a leading indicator of where my most indelible moment is, is not exactly a moment in the film, but there is one iconic thing about the entire film. The score. Yes. My best performance is Henry Mancini. Okay. He created a legendary thing that, for being 60 years old, and a film franchise that has since been remade, it carries on a legacy because you know the musical tune instantly. Yes. Well, this is not the first time that Mancini worked with Blake Edwards. He did Moon River because Blake Edwards directed Breakfast at Tiffany's. He also did the theme song to Peter Gunn. Blake Edwards directed the TV show. So, yeah, they had a long relationship. And and Mancini uh, did quite well for himself with scoring these movies and and shows for Blake Edwards and working with him. Okay. Are we going to somehow hold that against him because John Williams also did well working with Steven Spielberg? No, I'm not holding it against him. I have Mancini down as most charismatic because his uh, music transcends the film. More people recognize the theme to the Pink Panther than have probably seen any of the films at this point in time. And that's my point. So I went with charismatic for that reason. I mean, I, I suppose you can make an argument, but my whole whole kind of point with it is is that if there's one thing to really point to as far as what people know in the popular culture that you even mentioned transcends the film, it's the score. Yes. Like, if you went in the moment, and this is kind of dividing the category kind of the way we do with legacy and impact significance, but... In the moment, I'm sure the big thing coming out of the movie was Peter Sellers. That's why they made four other sequels in relatively short order. But if you're talking 20, 30, and now 60 years down the road, it's Mancini's had the lasting effect on the movie. Yeah, okay. But that's, I mean, we just came at it from different angles, but I knew knew that you were going to have Mancini in here. But I just put him in as charismatic because I think Blake Edwards, from a performance standpoint, solely on that, did the best job of the people directly involved. Mancini's goes broader than that. And it's not just this score from this, but it's his body of work. My best secondary was Blake Edwards, even though it seemed like, to a degree, he kind of stumbled into all of the the stuff that 
made this film, at least in the, the immediate or in its impactful zone, kind of significant. He stumbled into Peter Sellers, and that kind of became the defining character of the movie. Uh, he stumbled into the tone of the movie. He stumbled into the Pink Panther character become a, becoming a much larger aspect outside of the movie. And somehow being able to manage all of those things and develop all the happy accidents, despite some of the chaos that was apparently contributing to this movie, I kind of by default went with him as my secondary, partially because I just can't give it to Peter Sellers. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. I went with Blake Edwards also. And the reason why is because, yeah, he, you know, he stumbled into a lot of this, but it took some talent on his part to realize what to go with, that you should just, you know, this is working. Wasn't necessarily how I envisioned it uh, initially, but I'm I'm willing to adapt and change and go with this because I think I'm going to end up with something better than I thought I was going to, but in a different direction. And that takes not just some level of talent, but some ability to swallow your own pride or ego and to go with what, something that you did not necessarily intend, but is working. And so that's why I think as a secondary performance, I think that's exactly where I was going with this is recognizing that you've got something different than what you really thought you had to begin with. And that's a much better version of what I was trying to say. Oh, okay. Well, good. As far as charismatic, you already gave yours, but I went with kind of an off the wall choice. I went with Claudia Cardinale who played Princess Dalla, because even though it wasn't her voice, you're drawn to trusting her, even though there's always something slightly mysterious and off about her. And you want to be drawn into her web. I don't know. There, there's something intangible about the character that she possesses in this movie. And I don't, as far as Cluzo's wife, I could never quite understand why both of the men were kind of after her as opposed to Dala. There seemed to be a strange attraction to her as far as I was concerned, and frankly, as far as the camera was concerned, too. Well, having Ava Gardner in that role would have been interesting. In the Cluzo's wife? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I think that would have changed the dynamic quite a bit. But it's possible that she would have outshone some of her uh, colleagues. At that point in time, I don't think so. I think Ava Gardner's career was on the wane at that point in time, so I don't think she had near the star power, but she had the sex appeal. Well, that's what I'm kind of talking about. Yeah, there just wasn't something... There was something about... There may not have been a believability that she would have been with Peter Sellers. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Let's move to best scene, then. I only have six nominees down. Basically, they were the six scenes that I could really remember with any clarity. The dog napping. So the original stealing of the dog. Ski lessons, which is George and... I don't know, do they ever say Cluzo's wife's name? I don't remember, to be honest. It's so... Oh, it's Simone. Okay. Simone. All right. Well, anyway, 
Too Much Champagne, Late Night Visitors, which is the kind of French farce scene with them hiding under the bed or in the bathroom and etc. etc. I have Gorilla Play, again, self-explanatory. And then I have The Trial. Yes. Best scene for me was Late Night Visitors. It's the most technically involved. It had a lot of layers to it. You had people entering and exiting at all different points. I'm sure that took quite a long time to shoot. That's my best scene also. I I love a a well-executed scene like that of French farce because, you know, it's comedic suspense. Are they going to get caught? And every time you think they're going to get, you know, out, you know, he pulls the door handle off, you know, then he's got to go back under the bed and then he's hiding, hanging off the hook on the door. I mean, it's, it was well done. Yeah. And it's a fairly long scene for this movie as well. I want to say it's at least 10, maybe 15 minutes. Uh, Yeah, I think probably. So... As far as that goes, it's probably my favorite scene just from the execution of it. I could appreciate what they were attempting to do, even if I didn't laugh once. (laughs) Okay. It's my favorite scene also, because I thought it was well done. I'd forgotten how well done it really was until I saw it again. As far as indelible moment, I already mentioned before, but I'll come back to it again. It's not a moment necessarily as the thing that stuck out for me and it's the music the theme song is well known probably all over the world i actually had a uh henry mancini's greatest hits cd at one point in time so that i could play you know or uh peter gunn moon river the pink panther the baby elephant walk from um doctari But for me, the most indelible moment was the courtroom scene because it was the most implausible portion of the entire film. Because what possible reason would anybody have if you're guilty sticking it in your pocket and pulling it out on the stand? I mean, it's just like everybody would have went like, um, okay. This makes no sense. So it didn't make any sense to me. It just didn't. Well, I think there are a lot of problems with kind of the ending, but you kind of put yourself in a difficult spot trying to solve or land the plane of a comedy. I mean, a lot of comedies have poor endings. I guess. So let's take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com slash gmotepodcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done for all 158 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Pat Robertson, 93, American televangelist. 
uh, from the 700 Club, founder of the Christian Broadcast Network and Regent University. Cormac McCarthy, 89, American novelist, wrote uh, Blood Meridian, uh, No Country for Old Men, and The Road. At least the last two were made into films. He also is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Leah Mortensen, 57, American actress, was in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I guess she was big in the Chicago theater scene because the only obituary I could find was from the Chicago Tribune. Pat Cooper, 93, American actor. He's, again, one of these guys that's, oh, that guy. I remember when I saw his picture, I'm like, I watched this guy doing guest spots on the Andy Griffith show in the early 60s. He was on, like, um, you name it, Bob Newhart, Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, every television show you can imagine, not just film, but television shows playing characters. And then he's in Fighting Back, Analyze This, Analyze That, um, and he was an active comedian. And I remember him many times on late night talk shows. He was a regular who would, he always seemed to break up uh, Johnny Carson. He always had a great relationship, if I remember correctly, with Joey Bishop. When Bishop had his show, he was rather an icon. Well, I mean, he was notable for also doing, I guess, a small run on Seinfeld. And I know that he was also a very popular Howard Stern guest. He was still a big late night guest for a lot of different places up through like the end of the 90s. And he also started his career as an opener for both Sinatra and Paul Anka, although he got fired from both gigs. And then lastly, Treat Williams, 71 American actor, uh, was in Hair, Prince of the City and Everwood. I was I had not heard that when I happened to look up in preparation for the show, but he had been a longtime actor and uh, star around Hollywood and television for a long time. I remembered a little bit of Pat Cooper having seen both analyze this and that, you know, in my youth, let's say. And I remembered this guy very fondly. I think my first interaction with him was as Neil Caffey's dad in White Collar which would have been just after I think you stopped watching the show. But this is a guy that I, I looked at a picture and I'm like, oh, that guy would have never known his name. But he's another one of those that you've seen in a bunch of different things. And so I started looking through his filmography and just trying to place where I remembered him from because his face was instantly recognizable to me. Yes. And so we honor these here for their contributions to TV, literature, theater, acting, comedy, and all things in between with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. For being a movie that's defined supposedly by its comedy, I have two. Uh, yes. Clouseau, having stepped on and broken the violin, it's no matter. When you've seen one Stradivarius, you've seen them all. At a costume ball, a, tr- a police sergeant costumed as a zebra drinks from the punch bowl. Clouseau, any more behavior like this and I will have your stripes. Police escort. Tell me, Inspector, Senor Phantom, all those robberies, 
How did you ever manage it? Well, you know, it wasn't easy. By the way, the funniest part, the only part where I actually laughed in the entire film is after they do the kind of like car French farce of them all just going coming in from different parts of the streets and all into that one intersection and then eventually colliding. When the zebra comes out of nowhere and starts clomping down the street as they're just running in this zebra costume. That was the lone time where I laughed. And it was more a chortle. Uh, yeah. Okay. Did you have any others? No, I don't. Okay, so between the two of us, we had three. Yeah, it was it was not a, a great film for quotes or lines. All right. Then let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. I have a feeling and a duty that I shouldn't probably go first. Okay, for the industry. The Pink Panther resulted in uh, five films, plus there were three more that were done after Peter Sellers' death, and then a reboot with two films with Steve Martin. It spawned a cartoon series that lasted for a few years. It, I think Mancini, I know Mancini won an Oscar for Moon River, and I can't remember off the top of my head if Breakfast Activities was before or after this film. Well, that's easy enough to look up. 1961, so it would have been two years prior. Okay. So, but still... Mancini had gotten so popular by the time this film was out, Mancini became close friends with Johnny Carson. And Mancini was well known within Hollywood of throwing the best cocktail parties in Hollywood. And Carson would come and he would stand by a bookshelf and people would gather around. And once he got a group around, then he would be entertained. It's It helps cement Blake Edwards' career. And then after the rebound with the sequels in the early 70s, it launched Blake Edwards into a very successful and productive period in the 80s. I have to give the industry a perfect five because you don't see this that often. I mean, when we're talking about a franchise, we didn't have too many at this point in time. What did we have? We had uh, the Bond series. and Which was just starting. Yeah. This is the second or the year that uh, From Russia with Love came out. So it would have, well, uh, yeah, From Russia with Love was 64. So we would have had the second of those films. And it was just before Planet of the Apes. So, I mean, just to show you the level of iconic nature of this, I remember this would have been while I was, I think, in either early high or Peter Sellers, I think, died in 77 or 78. And so the Milwaukee Brewers, the players, were such big fans of the Pink Panther. They asked the MLB if they could wear something pink as part of their uniform in honor of Peter Sellers. Well, of course, the I think it was Bowie Kuhn was the commissioner at the time, said no. So they did their own little thing and wore stuff on the field during batting practice. So that's the level of people that really... But that's the fan interaction. That's not the industry. But it became so big and so 
And I guess that's why I'm getting into that, which is I'm going to go with a five for the industry because of its impact and its permeation through the industry. And I'm going to give it a four for the public because it did. But quite frankly, I had to go only with a four because I think it's kind of waned through the years. I don't think the Pink Panther remakes with uh, Steve Martin were as successful as they had hoped. I mean, it was good enough with the first one that they did the sequel, but I haven't seen her. There's now not been any talk of a third one. Um, so I went with, um, with a four for the public, so a nine total for a legacy. Okay. So we're not terribly far off on this one. I have to recognize that it is iconic in how large we're talking about. By the way, I looked it up. Peter Sellers died in 1980 just for the sake of the the facts and information providing in real time for you folks. That is, yep, my my opportunity here. But I would have gone probably a four on the industry. It's not like it's the best critically reviewed thing. I don't think that, you know, it, this wouldn't have been up for awards. Comedies was not a big thing. Although, at least back in the day, they had less movies to kind of like contend with as compared to today where we have hundreds that you could pick it from in a, a given year, but comedy still just have never truly been recognized by the Academy. I don't think that these were like the biggest sequels. I think these were like B level movies that a lot of people enjoyed and had a cult following of. It strikes me a little interesting that they were able to release a sequel literally three months after the original came out in the States to me, that indicates a level of them knowing exactly what they had before they released the film. No, I can tell you, I looked it up. The Shot in the Dark was supposed to be a completely different film. And the script was done, it was going to go into production. But the studio was so pleased with the outcome of the Pink Panther, they gave it to Blake Edwards and said, rework this and put Sellers in it as Clouseau instead of the detective that's supposed to be in this. And so they already had the script. They had a lot of the cast. They had the, the seat, uh, sites for the shoots all picked out. Everything was already in pre-planning, so it was relatively easy to convert this film that was supposed to be something different into the sequel. Okay. I don't know. I just can't quite get to a five as far as it goes on the legacy because, I mean, how many people in the industry have really given much thought to this franchise? It's not like it's being bought by Disney and trying to be repurposed. And you know that's the true sign of any franchise anymore is Disney squeezing the absolute lifeblood from it uh, for profit. So I I had a four there. I have a 4.5 for the audience because there's some iconic pieces to this. I do think that the name Inspector Clouseau means something. I think the character or the cartoon character of the Pink Panther means something. I think the music is still permeating and somehow has an iconic status beyond the film. People recognize the tune even if they don't know about the movie. I just can't give it a full five because I don't know how many people have actually seen the original. Or any of the sequels, that matter. Yeah, I, having lived through that time frame, everybody talked about it. And everybody would quote lines from it. Not just this, but the sequels and some of that stuff. But 
I I understand. I just I guess I have more admiration for it than you do, having been through that time frame. Well, you gave the public actually less than I did, so we yes, ended I up did. a half point away from each other. I have an eight point five, giving this an eight point seven five average. Go ahead with impact significance. Well, we kind of have already trampled all over it, so I could probably just give my scores. I don't think that this is universally beloved by the industry, but they recognized at least the money-making potential. So I went with a 4.5 for there, and we've already established that the public overwhelmingly loved this movie, loved the character, loved the music, and so I think it's a 5. I went with a 9.5. Okay. I actually have uh, a 9. I went with a 4.5 and a 4.5. Uh, I did not go to year five for the public because it was only 10th. The sequel made more money. I couldn't give it more than that for that reason, but it did launch it within that impact significant period. So I just gave it a little point down for that at 4.5. You know what? I'll, I'll accept that. We'll go with nine. Okay. Novelty. It's a heist film, and it's a spoof of a heist film. I don't know if there's a lot of films that started. I I almost say that this is a predecessor of Mel Brooks and his uh, spoofing of genre. And so I'm going to give it a few points up, although the, the level of humor was not original, and it wasn't really that well done for that reason. So I went with an eight simply because of the nature of the film, but there was so much in it that was not really, I mean, if you'd seen to catch a thief with, you know, with Hitchcock and 55, it's not that different from that other than it's a spoof. So I gave it points for being a spoof, but not for originality in setting. Well, that was the film I thought of specifically as well. I would think that this movie could be To Catch a Thief if you just put Peter Ustinoff in it. Yes. I mean, To Catch a Thief isn't like all that thrilling or all that tense. It's got a lighter tone. Cary Grant's just kind of suave and whatnot. And it could be a very direct takeoff. It's just kind of the introduction of Sellers that makes this different. But a lot of what Sellers is doing, we already pointed out, could be Harpo Marx or Stan and Laurel Hardy. Okay. Or the Stooges. So I I don't think the humor necessarily is that inventive or creative other than putting it in a cop perspective. Now, if you wanted to say that this is the predecessor to... Naked Gun, I could buy that. I, I think this this kind of establishes that tone. I can buy your Mel Brooks point. My only question would be, wouldn't those be indicators not necessarily of novelty, but of legacy more than novelty? Mm, yes, I guess. But I mean... I, I'm I'm just saying that it started a trend at yeah, I can see that. That you it's 
as much legacy as, as novelty, but I'm just saying there was nothing really that was that much of a, um, there wasn't much in that genre before this. This is one of the early ones, so that's why I gave it points up for novelty, because there really wasn't spoof of films, per se, or the type of film. Well, let's say this. I can't think offhand of another movie before this that makes fun of a law enforcement officer. Quite so directly. That's true. That's a good point. So I think it suffers a little bit from the lack of novelty with the the comedy or the humor, but I think from its premise and its structure and maybe its execution, I can go with a, a seven and be comfortable. I can't get to an eight, but that's a 7.5 average between the two of us. Classicness, well, this is a comedy which isn't very funny anymore. (laughs) Okay. If we could give the Marx Brothers points up for still somehow being funny from 1935, the one movie we've done of theirs so far, I don't see a path where we can't at least give it some points down for, yeah. Okay. So, what did you have? I had a five. Wow. Okay. I gave it some down for not or for not have being as funny anymore. But we had strong female characters that had integral parts in the in the uh, presentation that were important to the overall structure in a time when it was fairly male dominated. Yet you could make a case that it was a little bit diversified yes by supposedly having what i'm going to deem is like indian royalty i think that's the insinuation without ever explicitly saying as much yes so to that extent i gave it some points down for the humor i gave it points up for the presentation of female characters So I went with an 8. Well, that'd be a 6.5 between the two of us, which puts it just below the baseline. Rewatchability. Okay. Go ahead. 3.5. Oh, higher than I thought. Uh, Again, you have to create gradations. Like, I have to imagine there are some really long silent films (laughs) that are going to be near the bottom zero as it is with classicness and probably novelty is going to be birth of a nation and by which everything is either a zero or wherever the tens are you kind of know those two so uh, this is more entertaining even though it's two hours and it drags a little bit for me. Oh, yeah. I don't have as many complicated feelings. It's not necessarily difficult to watch. I'm just a little bored. So that to me is like 3.5. I don't know. Maybe I'll surprise you with this. I haven't seen the film probably in 15 years. And 15 years is about right. Okay. I... I I'm, I'm going to be 60. I'm hoping that, you know, I got 20 years. 
And quite uh, frankly, if I never see the film again, I guess it's okay. I've seen it three or four times. That's good enough. I know what it's about. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm at a, uh, 5.5 because I, I, there were times I, I almost should just say rewatchability should be based in part. What the score should be is how many times I look at my watch or the counter on the screen as to when it's going to be done (laughs) because I kept going, okay, how long yet do we have to go? Oh, Geez, another 40 minutes? <sighs> I just kind of got bored with it at, you know, at a couple of points in time. So. Trust me, I definitely understand. For audience score, we had a... Oh, I suppose I should give the average on the last category. That was a 4.5 between the two of us. Audience score, we had a 69% for Rotten Tomato users and a 78% for Google, or excuse me, I got those backwards, 69% for Google users, 78% for Rotten Tomato users, for a 7.35. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.75 average on Legacy, a 9 average on Impact Significance, 7.5 on Novelty, 6.5 on Classicness, 4.5 on Rewatchability, and a 7.35 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... which is higher than I thought it was going to get. And placing it tied with the Magnificent Seven. Okay. Just behind Avatar and in front of the Philadelphia story. All right. Remaining questions in this one. You already kind of talked about the trial a little bit, but if Clouseau is cleared after the next theft... Wouldn't the blame potentially shift back on Sir Charles? Well, of course. That's why he said, as they're leaving, let's go to South America. I also don't understand the na- the nature of you leaving a calling card as a jewel thief. I don't know. Being audacious? I mean, after all, we have Home Alone. We had the wet bandits. Fair enough. Do you have any remaining questions? I have a lot of remaining questions, but none pertaining to this film. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So if Mrs. Clouseau was married to Inspector Clouseau for like 10 years, as they said, I think near the end in the trial, was she a plant the entire time? Um, I don't know. Sometimes, uh... Women lose interest in their husbands. Speaking from experience? Um, I'm not commenting on that. She doesn't listen to the show. Okay. I know. She listens, The only way we get her to listen to the show is when she's on it. Exactly. So. Oh, well. Remaining thoughts for the week? None really. I mean, I'm on vacation this week so i'm actually doing the show from uh the spring hill winery and bed and breakfast in uh central kentucky it's been a nice little reprieve from my normal grind and the practice of law so so i'll be back uh home next week and uh we'll be recording from the studio i on the other hand 
it seems very likely that the Screen Actors Guild or SAG-AFTRA is going to also be striking. So I am going to encourage everyone to treat this much in the same way that the pandemic was. If there's a show that was big that you haven't gotten to and needed an excuse to go back and watch stuff that other people have recommended, if you have a very long movie list that you just haven't been able to pick up on, I am going to figure that for minimally, I would say, till September, but I'm thinking this is going to go till Christmas, you're going to have time to catch up on all of that stuff that you neglected for years because there just won't be new content. And even then, there will be a lag time going into next year where they've got to kind of get the wheels turning again in order to produce the content machine, so to say. So I have a feeling that you're going to be able to catch up on Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, The Wire, The Sopranos, Succession, all the great TV shows. And if you wanted to, you can use our great master list of greatest movies of all time and just go through our top 10 and see if there is a handful that you haven't seen before bunch of good classic movies. It's what the list is there for. Maybe it's a plug for us, kind of shamelessly. I don't care. Well, I know for a fact that uh, there's a documentary that's either been released or is about to be released on Mary Tyler Moore and her impact and significance on female culture. It was just released on Max. Okay, her show is available on Hulu, so if you have Hulu, you can watch the original Mary Tyler Moore show. The cast is fantastic. The show was incredibly well written. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, Betty White, Ed Asner, Ted Knight, Gavin McLeod. I mean, it's just a phenomenal show. It was one of my favorites at that time because it came on in the 70s when I was a child, and I watched that faithfully until it went off the air. Well, there you go. Another recommendation for everyone. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Let me tell you something. There's no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man, and I have been a poor man, and I choose rich every fucking time because at least as a rich man... When I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a $40,000 gold fucking watch. Next week for its 10th anniversary, we are discussing the Wall Street thrill ride, The Wolf of Wall Street from 2013, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Terrence Winter, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, Margot Robbie, and Matthew McConaughey. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page on our Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.